0: Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy.
1: Hi, I'm Kevin Bayuk, a partner and worker-owner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Derek Razzo. Derek is co-founder of Common Trust, which helps business owners exit to their employees and community through Purpose Trusts. He is also co-founder of the Purpose Foundation, an organization that does research and builds infrastructure to enable equitable ownership, governance, and financing models. He has helped dozens of companies raise mission-aligned capital and set up alternative ownership transactions from the earliest of stages all the way to exit. Derek also holds a degree from UC Berkeley. I think it was, I first heard of Derek due to his involvement with the Inspiral network. Inspiral, some of the listeners might be familiar with, but at Lift Economy, we talk about Inspiral a lot as an organization, probably more accurately, a network of uh, inspiring people that have been experimenting with models and developing ways to increase collaboration on projects that are very important to the future of humanity. And I remember somebody telling me something like, oh, you got to meet this person. This individual has been developing an application called co-budget to help communitarian groups or, or collectives allocate common resources effectively. And that was such an important need. It was so many of the groups that Lyft Economy was working with. I remember being very excited and had the privilege of chatting with Derek. And over time, I've had multiple opportunities to sit down with Derek and discuss, you know, finance, the economy, enterprises, you know, it all around the idea of what would be needed for a livable future. And I've been consistently inspired, impressed and just animated by Derek's thinking and I think very importantly his commitment to discernment and a depth of understanding of those themes and many other aspects of life that are important to me that we probably won't talk about today in the podcast, but at Lift Economy, we we consider Derek a core ally, and I'm very excited for this podcast conversation. Derek, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Thanks for the kind words.
1: So Derek, tell us a little bit about your story, wherever you want to start, and how did you navigate to the work that you're doing today?
0: Yeah, So I kind of draw the line back at at UC Berkeley. So at that time, I went to UC Berkeley and studied their university, and I studied computer science and business. And at that time, I had, and I also lived in the Berkeley Student Co-ops, which is a nonprofit-owned network of houses that allow students who otherwise wouldn't have the means to go to university to live in those houses at a reduced rate in exchange for the work and labor of democratically organizing and managing your own kind of dorm environment. And so I had this really formative experience of, you know, being in these, the context of these heady abstractions and computer science and thinking about how to like build, you know, these systems that are powering more and more of society. And at the same time, being in the Haas Business School, which, you know, at the time I think, and to the degree that I was in it, was really like, Emblematic of this kind of VC mindset, like to entrepreneurship. This is how you scale. You know, there's this whole pathway, and you know, all you have to do is just learn this toolkit for how to build an infinitely scalable company, and that's going to be great. And and we should all do that. And then at the same time, you know, on my nights and weekends, I'm spending time in these democratically organized housing community. You know, taking votes with a hundred people in the dinner hall about you know how we should organize different aspects of that organization. And so it was this really powerful juxtaposition for me of saying, oh, well, there's there's all these tools at our disposal, the tools of business, the tools of technology, the tools of organizing and community and, and democracy. And yeah, was really inspired to basically figure out, you know, is there something in between all of these that actually can be built. And and, and that inquiry really led me to, you know, after university really led me to things like Inspiral, worked with a number of projects in the Inspiral network like Lumio and CoBudget, tech tools for democracy, for democratic organizing of communities and corporations, exploring alternative financing for those organizations, exploring alternative governance structures for those organizations and for the network as a whole led me towards working with a number of global NGOs, especially in the environmental space around alternative funding models for internal innovation. And to kind of spend a few years at that time running around meeting social movement leaders and social enterprise leaders in different parts of the world, just trying to figure out like, what is working? And what is sort of would be the highest use of my time and energy. And that is kind of what has led me towards the stuff that I'm working on now, which is really around the thesis of how do we build the infrastructure for this next economy, you know, the next economy that is going to include people in shaping their own destiny with regard to the economics and the governance of assets in their communities.
1: Quite a journey and still evolving. I love it. One thing that you've mentioned that I just point out for listeners, uh, one thing about Derek that has always struck me is there's definitely a global community and networks, networks globally that Derek interacts with. You know, so many people that we meet at Lift Economy are very just North American or American focused. One thing I love about Derek is, you know, hearing stories and examples of work that's happening around the world. So let's talk about what's going on. So recently in the news, there was a lot of excitement around what Patagonia, Patagonia Works, that that organization did with kind of creating a Patagonia purpose trust. And In the way the news framed it, it's like, oh, this is a new thing or purpose trusts are some innovative thing. And In Lyft Economy, we immediately thought of Purpose Foundation and a lot of the work that you've been doing, both in the discovery and then the development of a number of purpose trusts as a means of exit or providing for additional guidance around control of an organization and how benefits are shared. Can you tell the story of the development of Purpose Foundation, what you've learned and some of the work that you've done? And if you want to comment on the news of the day as well, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So starting with kind of the Purpose Foundation, the genesis of the Purpose Foundation was really around this exploration into how can we build economic structures that benefit and include. So include people in the benefit and the governance of the assets that are a feature of their everyday lives. So we really took this question of, you know, who benefits and who controls from assets in the economy. And if you look at that right now, in most areas of life, in most areas of the economy, it's the sort of golden rule. It's the people with the gold make the rules. So people, you know, how are these assets governed? Well, they're governed by the people who bring the capital. And how does the benefit of the asset work? Well, it works to benefit the people who brought the capital. And we kind of identify this as really like one of the core features of the reason that the system that we live in right now continues to lead to the same outcomes again and again and again and again. So it's sort of the thesis behind the Purpose Foundation is really like, well, we have to figure out how to make a set of new pathways that don't lead to those same outcomes for a livable future. And we think at the core of that is really infrastructure, the legal system, the way that policy shapes our ability to interact with, you know, the communities, networks, assets in our lives. And so jumping from that inquiry, you know, part of what we had to figure out in the early days is like, well, how do you even before you start trying to optimize and build the ideal type of organizational structure and, and solve these problems, start to run experiments and how to solve these challenges in new ways, how do you even get an organization to be able to do the thing it says it's going to do, right? Because it's well known by this point that even if you're starting a sort of socially conscious enterprise and you have really well-intentioned founders and employees and investors, that there is just this natural pathway in which an organization, a company, and frankly, like even nonprofits sort of are pulled away from their mission or what they think is actually the most impactful thing towards activities and capital sources and strategies that ultimately serve the interests of their investors and the people who are benefiting from the organization. So, the first thing you have to do is solve for that. How do you get an organization to be able to actually live up to its mission and its promises? And we took the approach of really looking kind of back in history first and saying what organizations have survived, so maintained competitiveness and relevance in a changing world, especially over the last, you know, 100 years. And how have those organizations managed to actually stay true to the mission, stay true to treating stakeholders in ways that are of high integrity, and actually protect themselves from this deleterious effect of the influence of capital. And what we found is that the good news is that there's lots of examples of this all over the world, in every legal system, in every culture. And the sort of Interesting thing that came out of this research was that there wasn't one structure. You know, it didn't emerge that like, oh, it's a co-op. All you have to do is set up a co-op and that'll protect your mission. That'll protect your economics. That'll protect, that'll allow you to be competitive. You know, some of the organizations we found were co-ops, but they were co-ops that had additional features or were set up in really unique ways. Some of the organizations weren't co-ops and actually had, you know, frankly, like much more hierarchical structures. But when we look into the details of how they treat their employees, they have you know, much higher than standard wages, they have bonus programs, they have employees on the board, they have all these features that we would normally associate with a more radical structure, but, you know, maybe they're not, they don't even consider themselves to be very radical at all. So a lot of these organizations are in Europe, and there's a number of them scattered around, we find new ones every day. And we tried to basically pull out the core themes of what were we seeing given that all these structures are so vastly different in the way that they solved this problem of a long-term alignment. We tried to pull out the themes and from that kind of coined this idea of steward ownership or, you know, stewardship models, as some people call it. Stewardship models have a really simple basis for like what they are. They are any legal and, you know, financial structure, organizational structure that legally binds the company and its people to two principles. So the first is self-governance. So the governance of the organization is protected and it is run by people who are connected to the mission and the operations in some way. That can be done in a whole bunch of different ways. That ranges from employee co-op centric type of organizations all the way through, you know, functionally much more managerial organizations, but where the management is and the kind of stewards of these organizations actually don't have the right to destroy and privatize the asset. So they're functionally acting as custodians and stewards of this self-protecting, self-governing entity. And then the second principle is profit serves purpose. So the company has some kind of capital allocation and financial structure that allows the profits to serve the higher purpose of the organization. This doesn't mean that it's a nonprofit. It doesn't mean that you can't have investors, but it does mean that the capital allocation strategy of the company over the long term should be able to kind of re-aggregate towards the company away from capital interests so that the company can reinvest in growth, in innovation, in its people, in the environment, or whatever the mission is. And this is what we see across all of these examples of the very long-lived steward-owned companies. So that was kind of the starting point. And as we built, as we tried to implement this in the U.S., we found, oh, wow, this is not simple. This actually goes against the grain of, you know, not just the culture of investment and entrepreneurship and all these other things which is obvious but it in fact also has some cuts against the grain of what the legal system is designed to do the legal system is not designed to build and have these kind of sustainable custodianship models the legal system is designed to aggregate capital too the folks who already have capital. And so we had to set out to invent a whole bunch of new stuff or take things that had been used a little bit and repurpose them or upgrade them. And, and that's really the work that we've been doing over the last few years, both on in the alternative financing space, finding new ways to finance organizations at every stage, and especially at the exit stage, and also finding new ways to own companies, new ways to arrange the ownership of companies such that they can actually achieve this vision of being steward owned and having a real mission that is, you know, not greenwashable. Yeah. So that's kind of the genesis of purpose foundation. Maybe I'll pause there if you have any questions for,
1: well, it sounds great. And it made me think of thinking of our listeners and what they might be aware of or sympathetic to. I might ask some follow-on in a second here to like, might be fun actually critiquing certain things that don't live up to those two principles, but ostensibly When people think about those principles around control and benefit sharing, they'll think of, like you already mentioned, co-ops as an example. I actually want to talk about benefit corporations as well. And let's just like critique them as where they fall short of the durability or in practice of honoring those principles. But before we go to that, I did want to just say, yeah, it's non-trivial the work that you, when you're saying you're cutting against the grain of like the even the legal system, there is some invention that was done. I do want to go further in the story of the first Foundation as well. Let's do the critique, but I do want to go to what happened with OGC, making that example real and how that kind of maybe did bring in more demand. So a white paper gets published, and then all of a sudden there's an actual instantiation of a transaction, something happening, and then all of a sudden I saw, from my vantage point, I saw a flood of interest come after that event. So there's two threads here. But first, can we critique co-ops a little bit deeper? People might not know, like, what does demutualization mean? Or what are the risks around? Why do co-ops not universally meet the standard for adhering to those principles?
0: Yeah, happy to speak on that. So there's been, you know, there's been lots of experiments in how to do this. And I think it's important to say that while we coined this term, we certainly did not invent this structure or set of structures. And of course, there are a lot of other people doing similar experiments. You know, you mentioned benefit corporations and B Corp. You mentioned co-ops. Co-ops have been around for, you know, as long as we have record of humans doing economic activity together. You know, it's an interesting question of why the research didn't turn up more co-ops, right? And I think the, as we've gone through the process of talking to at this point, I think thousands of organizations with alternative structures, the answers that we've come to, while they're not, you know, I can't point you at a statistical analysis of this just yet. My understanding of it from the work that we've been doing is something like, you know, a co-op is fundamental, usually set up to be of benefit to its members and governed by its members, which means that it is fundamentally more inclusive, fundamentally more It is a shared ownership model, right? It's something that's really worth aspiring to and appreciating. But the key function that a lot of co-ops don't have is this function of the protection of self-governance, right? So you've solved the capital allocation problem. You've solved the voice problem. But there is this third thing, which is the custodianship, stewardship, this protection of the structure itself, this is a topic of a lot of debate, I think, in the co-op sector of whether or not this is even desirable. Like, why shouldn't the workers be able to just sell the company? And, you know, I think that's an interesting conversation. It's a little bit, it's a little bit abstract from my perspective, but sometimes my response to this is like, there's a reason that like the government can't sell the EPA, right? If the current head of the EPA could sell the EPA, well, we wouldn't have an EPA. We would have, you know, uh, EPA brought to you by BP or something. And democratic any democratic structure worth creating is worth preserving is kind of the opinion that i have which is you know not a universalism or a truth but this is kind of the perspective that we take so the first i think major reason why there's not more large co-ops that have succeeded in the very long term and and the key difference in the ones that we do see that have succeeded in the long term is this protected self-governance and that that manifests in a bunch of ways so that can be a straight up ban on selling the company, Uh, that's less common, but can be done. It can be a really high voting threshold for how a company is sold. So a great example of this in the US is Equal Exchange, right? Like I consider Equal Exchange to be steward owned, and they are a co-op as well. And the reason is because they have a very high voting threshold that includes all the employees. So if they were going to sell the company, if they were going to demutualize, they would have to get a huge number of the employees on board with actually this plan of selling the company, and, and that starts to look to me more like this custodianship protection. It's a little bit subjective, but, you know, there's a big difference between getting 51% of a group of stakeholders and 70%, say, or 80% of stakeholders. And then the other, there, there's a whole bunch of other ways that, you know, you can protect this particular aspect of the structures, you know, a la golden shares. And, and of course, we've done a lot of work with these purpose trusts, which we think are are currently kind of like the gold standard in the US for how you do a mission protecting structure, because it, you
1: know, it allows you to add these
0: new fiduciary duties that are aligned with purpose.
1: Great rundown. And I know this, my follow on questions might extend the length of this podcast, but I do think listeners will be interested, some will be interested in the nuanced details here. So can we, Talk about benefit corporations for a moment, which was another theoretical attempt to at least give some attention to the control, the ability to make decisions to preserve purpose but not necessarily benefit. So I'd be curious to talk about that. And then also just another, it just made me think of another common structure is some people say, well, isn't this what nonprofits do? And so maybe we could just go through them in brief of like, why don't they match up to the standard? Totally.
0: Yeah. Happy to comment on that. And, and I would say the same thing about B Corp benefit corporations and nonprofits is they can be steward owned, but they're not necessarily steward owned unless they have these kind of two principles. So starting with benefit corporation and the B Corp, so there's a lot of confusion. I'm assuming that your listeners are, you know, know that there's kind of a difference between the B Corp certification and the benefit corporation, public benefit corporation, as a structure. And you know, the key fact about both of those things to know when you're talking about like real durable mission protection and alignment and enforceable mission alignment is that in both instances, the structure itself and the ability of the company to do the things that, you know, would align it with that mission over the very long term are ultimately subordinate to the ownership of the company, to the interests of the ownership of the company. So I kind of think of it as a public benefit corporation is a, is great while it's in place. And, you know, it may give social permission and it's questionable whether it gives legal permission if you're in a private structure. Very different in public market settings, but it might do those things for a little while <laughs> until The interests of the voting ownership decide, oh, this is is kind of annoying or it's getting in our way and then can vote it away. And so this passes level zero of the test of like have a purpose and a mission, but the real hurdle there is then protect that purpose and mission, make it legally protected. That's really the big difference here is in the legal system, ownership is king. So you have to rewrite the ownership of the entity in order to make any real claims about the the durability of that purpose and mission. Nonprofits, I think very very quickly, nonprofits are, you know, non-share corporations or trusts that are regulated by the IRS as a to ensure that they align with a charitable purpose that is mandated by the state. You know, this is fine, but just like co-ops, just like benefit corporations, nonprofits can also be demutualized. And the reality is that we often see, and I think the reason why a lot of nonprofits haven't survived, nonprofit owned companies or assets haven't survived for very long is because at a certain point, you have like the sixth board that the nonprofit has ever had. They have this company or this building or this community asset in their nonprofit portfolio and they're asking themselves, wow, the value of this thing's gone up a lot. Couldn't we do like a lot of good by just selling off this asset and, you know, taking that money and then Doing grants, that's like so much easier to administrate. And and that is that is usually why we see the demutualization or de nonprofitization. I don't know exactly what you want to call it for nonprofits. So it's very similar across all three classes of attempts at building mission-driven organizations, is that the lack of this self-protecting mechanism means that, you know, it's a matter of when, not a matter of
1: if. That's been the pattern. And so. If we could turn to organically grown company or OGC, and you could pick a different case study if you want, but uh, I remember Purpose Foundation being involved in that, and that really impressed me. And any example you choose, how do we go about creating that durable protection? Or you could choose any example from some of the work that Purpose Foundation has done, but like how do we go about doing
0: it? Yeah. So as I said, like our kind of thesis is that you really have to rewrite the ownership of the organization, the deep level. And so there's been a whole series of projects and experiments in this area before the Purpose Foundation, and in some cases like way before. There's we keep discovering these purpose trust owned entities that, you know, some random owner, founder set up sixty-five years ago and you know did all the legal work themselves and just kind of invented it and then, you know, with no fanfare kind of went on and now it's still around doing its thing. There has been an inflection point recently as you know, most obviously demarcated by the Patagonia transition. And so the sort of gold standard tool that we use right now is this thing called a perpetual purpose trust. It's a non charitable trust that has no human or (laughs) it has no particular beneficiaries. It has no people that you can point to and say like, this trust is for that person as like an owner would be an ownership stake would be. Instead, it has a purpose that purpose is sort of an articulation of, usually it's a number of purposes that make up the new fiduciary duty of the organization. So they are kind of legally binding statements about why the purpose trust exists, what it is there to do, how it operates, how the you know internal operation of that entity is going to operate and how it operates in relation to its holdings, which are usually you know, a company or multiple companies or a building or it can be many different things. And so we have been working on this structure for the last four or five years in earnest, figuring out new ways to use it, figuring out how to use it for different assets. Sort of one of the earlier transactions that we got to work on was Organically Grown Company, Purpose Europe, Purpose Evergreen Capital, which is our partners in Europe have this very mission aligned fund that they've set up to help facilitate transactions like this. Was the lead, the lead investor alongside Candide Group, which is another partner who's worked with us really closely in a number of these deals, like really getting into the weeds and has been, I think, probably one of the leading, if not the leading advocate in the space from from a capital perspective. So lots of appreciation for their work and showing up to this work in the early days before the Patagonia moment. And it's sort of in a way as simple as, you know, you need to design the trust, then you need to design a transaction structure that gets the assets, the shares of the organization into the trust. And we aim for a majority In the OGC case, it was 100% of the company. And then you execute the transaction and operate the company under this new shared ownership governance financing structure. And so from the OGC perspective, or, you know, using that transaction as kind of a example, we were able to work with the team over there to build this sort of integrated system. So the trust includes, you know, five stakeholder groups from across their supply chain and Those folks come together and kind of vote on the trust committee, this board of the trust and the trust committee kind of oversees the operating board of the day to day of the company, which functions much like any other operating board. Right. All you've done is you've replaced the financial owners with this trust owner that is kind of self constrained in terms of what it can do. Yeah. And then we set up a financial structure that allows different stakeholder groups to actually benefit alongside investors from that the success of that company
1: which is some of the outcomes there that I recall is much less expensive to maintain and facilitate than an ESOP structure or something that requires a revaluation.
0: Yeah. The reason that we, one of the reasons we really like the purpose trust is it's not regulated under the same codes as like an ESOP. And so it's, it's just like much simpler to set up. It's much cheaper to operate. It's really, really flexible. You can really do these Sprawling multi stakeholder deliberative processes, but also we can do a simple employee ownership structure. We do a lot of those, right? And it's employee ownership, but you have this added custodianship element through the trust. Or, you know, we can do hybrids. A lot of, so an example is like Firebrand Artisan Brez is another company that we got to work with us in Oakland. And they, you know, the vision for that organization, they have a, you know, really beautiful hiring mission focus, which is around, Hiring people who are formerly incarcerated or homeless and basically integrated that into an employee ownership structure. So they have employees on one side of the table in terms of trust. And around the table is also these community allies who kind of represent the interests of these target communities that they're working with. The CEO kind of sits on the trust and the board and in the management as kind of this person holding the context around all of it at once. And you know, when he leaves, there'll be a succession process that will go towards the employees as
1: well. One that's actually occurring to me is a question that I hadn't thought of. And so some people might be familiar with trusts where you have, you know, you mentioned it as a beneficiaries as an individual, so like a wealthy family or whatever, and there's somebody who's you know, older person and there's you know, children or grandchildren or whatever. And okay, we'll set up a legal trust where there's beneficiaries and the beneficiaries are the grandchildren or whatever. And they then have a set of trustees that are bound by law to work according to however the trust is written for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And when you mentioned trust committee, is trust committee synonymous with how the notion of trustees or is there a separation there? I, I'm asking out of my own ignorance.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. It's synonymous, but not exactly identical. So, you know, the trustees are not, or the trust committee, the trust stewardship committee is not empowered to just do anything with the shares. You know, they have to vote the shares and operate them in this with the constraints of the trust agreement as it's set up. There's also this sort of functionary role, which is a corporate trustee, which in a lot of these sort of family trusts, that corporate trustee may also play the governing role. But what we've done and what a lot of other groups using these structures have done is is really separate out the different roles. So separate out, okay, here's the governing body, here's the corporate and ministerial body that is actually not gonna have any power, but we need it to be all, all up in compliance. And then, you know, there is this third role in the trust, which is the trust enforcer who kind of takes on the role of a third party, like arbitrator to check over the work of the trust committee and make sure that they're actually doing their job in alignment with the purpose. So they don't have any day-to-day control and they don't necessarily even, they don't have the ability to vote the shares or do anything like that, but there's just sort of a third party check. And all of these roles exist in some ways to fulfill the requirements of the trust law, but... We've been able to, I think, architect that law into a structure that is actually really powerful, really sophisticated model of good governance by default. So that's what kind of makes it so interesting is it's the purpose, trust, trust as this construction of a trust stewardship committee and a trust enforcer and, you know, this administerial trustee and these, you know, purposes that interlock with this, like, stakeholder governance. That's all invented. (laughs) This is not, you know, trust law wasn't necessarily designed to do this very odd thing that we have it
1: doing. I love it, though. It's like you encounter the barriers cutting across the grain of the legal system to provide for durable adherence to these principles. And there is some invention or hacking of what's on the table. Trusts were on the table. You figured out how to do this in a very elegant way. And then there's been multiple transactions. And You know, despite what popular media might say, Patagonia was not the first purpose trust. I I don't know if anybody's actually saying that, but it seems like it in in the popular journalism. Is there anything that you would want to say about what's happened with Patagonia? Is this this good? Is this bad for the movement? Is it important? Is it not important?
0: Yes. The question of the day, I guess, of the last couple of weeks (laughs) in my inbox, at least. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is it's just so inspiring and powerful to have a company with the cultural presence that Patagonia has making such a bold move I think it's like hard to overstate how impactful I think it might be for this space and and for all the adjacent spaces you know it's like lots of people working on different esoteric corporate alternative corporate form and mission driven corporate form stuff so I think that's like the the top line right is that it's really interesting really exciting and it at the very minimum it causes it is causing us to have a lot of really interesting conversations <laughs> about you know what's great about it what maybe could have been improved or could have been done differently and because it's so public it actually is bringing people you know like my mom who I've never been able to necessarily explain what I do for a living to but you know she texts me and says did you see the thing about patagonia it's like Wow. That's amazing. Everyday people really thinking about corporate governance and corporate ownership and the impact of that on an organization. It's wild. It's amazing. So I think that's, yeah, that's really the top line. You know, I think that to your point, like Patagonia didn't invent the purpose trust nor this methodology for protecting a mission, but obviously they are one of the, if not the largest organization to ever set up this particular type of purpose trust, which I think is a really great instrument for protecting mission. Some of the counter examples that you might compare and contrast just to see how exceptional that example is, is, you know, Facebook also has a perpetual purpose trust, the oversight board, which is an independent third party purpose trust that is responsible for inputting on content moderation. And, you know, I'm not holding my breath for that purpose trust to enforce the mission that they were endowed with, with any sort of strength, right? Because They ultimately don't have any ownership. They ultimately don't really have control. And what control they do have is at the leisure of the board and those, and ultimately those owners. So the stark difference between the very surface level, very you know tepid version of this, which is the Facebook Oversight Board, and the very real, very legally binding, powerful version—that is the Patagonia Purpose Trust—is important to understand. I think there's been a lot of confusion. About the structure and about what it means is probably the second thing I would say. I think that, you know, without getting into all the nitty gritty of the tax stuff, which I think has been a big conversation a lot of people are interested in, I think it's worth saying that the reasonable critique that I think a lot of people are intuitively homing in on is, you know, the family governance of that trust, which, you know, makes it in some sense, like you could look at that and say, oh, this is just family ownership with less taxes and more steps. That's this kind of cynical take that I see a lot of people taking. And while I think there is a reasonable critique in there around, you know, is the family, how do we know? How can how can anyone know whether or not the family is the right people? I think that we have to trust, you know, you have to trust the people who are, started the company and built this thing and who are eschewing a huge sum of financial gain to pass this thing on in a way that is in alignment with their values. This is a high stakes game. For those people. So I think we should should assume with a bit of charitability that they've thought it through in a lot of detail. We talked to the Patagonia folks a bunch about this, about, you know, as they were investigating many options, obviously, like we're one of a number of groups that has some expertise on this. And so I, not having reviewed, you know, the trust documents myself or knowing exactly that this is true or not, I think it's worth assuming that it's pretty intentionally designed. And one of the subtleties that I haven't seen anybody really point out yet is While the family is, you know, directing this trust, it's not clear from my reading of any of the information that came out that they are, you know, that this trust is permanently going to be governed by family. Right. This is, you know, it would be very reasonable and very possible for this group to be the right group. And maybe they decide that the next group of people who should be running that trust doesn't include only family members or includes all kinds of other experts or whatever. We ultimately, I think, don't know the details and and should be hesitant to assume, but that is what I would, that's kind of what I'm expecting is that the trust has this kind of multi-generational intentional design and that we will see more from that design in the future. And whether or not there's more transparency around that governance structure, ultimately that's their prerogative. I think that it'll be interesting to see how it all develops. And in any case, is really inspiring and powerful. And, you know, I think that the thing that I would just highlight, I guess, as people are getting interested in the Purpose Trust of Patagonia and how all this stuff happened is this is only one of many possible designs. You know, design really, really matters for these types of structures because you can design, you know, the Purpose Trust historically has been used for, you know, I want a trust that will take care of my pet, you know, after I die, right? My cat that's the level of flexibility that we're talking about here and so or my art collection or whatever. and so because we're dealing with such a high degree of flexibility i think it is it is incumbent on everyone to kind of like get into the details a little bit, you know. you can't expect everyone to get into all the details, but The details do really matter on these structures because we just don't. They can be more and less intentionally designed. So like I said, with OTC, they have this very sprawling, very intentional multi-stakeholder design, but that comes out of their context, right? They were a co-op. They were a multi-stakeholder organization from the get-go in some ways. And so it was very natural for them to move into that structure. With Firebrand, you know, they were already doing all these employee engagement practices and open book management and all these different things. And so it's a very natural step to enshrine that in. And working with community groups is a very natural step to enshrine that into the governance. We should demand high-quality design. And also, we can at the same time hold that there is some ambiguity, depending on the type of company, where it is and at what stage it is. It might be suited for a different type of design than we might expect, right? This is not a, again, it's not a co-op. It doesn't have one structure that you can just say, this is the one structure. You have to really start from, from the ground up.
1: So design matters for the, you know, each of these not exactly a snowflake, but there's unique or there's conditions that are particular to each organization that one needs to design around. But it also matters at large. I think, you know, we've been talking through some of the details of the work of Purpose Foundation, but, you know, and some of the listeners might be able to intuit the impact, but I wonder if you could say like, well, what if this became the norm? So you've been cutting across the grain hacking or innovating, inventing, in some cases, you know, ways to make this, these elegant structures, what if they became like the table stakes? You know, you create an organization, you declare a purpose for the benefit of life or benefit of humanity, you know, environmental benefit, social benefits, so forth. In the spheres of everyday life around things like housing and food or pick your topics, Derek, what would it look like if this became normal?
0: Yeah, it's a really powerful question. And it's definitely a question that motivates me. I think that, you know, the vision is something like a civic society that is engaged in its own self-governance and engaged in the benefit created by the economic institutions at every level. And right now we have we have a sort of version of that in a way, but it's several hundred years old and carries with it a whole bunch of legacies that, you know, we don't necessarily want to be carrying forward. And we have the opportunity, I think, with these new structures to design economic institutions that really serve a purpose and that include stakeholders and that bake in like the cultural context and the the sort of prefiguration, let's say, of like a cultural context that maybe we want to live into that maybe we're not even there yet. So I think that just to give that a bit more like tangibility, it's like, you know, you imagine you wake up in a housing complex or an apartment building that you co-own and, you know, have the right to co-govern. You know, you take a car to work that is, you know, driven by somebody who's part of a network of mutual support network of people who are really making a good living doing that. And the asset is co-owned. The asset of both the infrastructure of that network and the assets themselves, the cars, are also co-owned and co-managed by those people. And that's co-owned and co-managed in a different way. that is not you know, prescribed by the way that your building operates. And then you go to work. And at work, you know, it's similar. You have a job, you do your, you do your work. This is not not a matter of everybody voting on everything and getting rid of all managers, but you know, there's accountability for the things that the company says it exists to do and for the people in the highest positions of power in that organization. And you know, you know, whether or not that organization is run like a co-op or a you know benevolent dictatorship. You know that there's accountability for a purpose that has been set down and you you show up for that purpose and you benefit when the company does well and you know how you benefit and that's all that's all made clear. And you know, this applies, I think, to every aspect of our lives, like every aspect of the assets that affect our lives, right? So you can think of this for electrical grids. You could think of this for broadband, ISP. You could think of this for, you know, obviously companies, real estate. And that is really what we're seeing people do with these structures is, revisit questions of community economic development, community engagement, real estate and affordable housing, employee community ownership and governance of businesses, and all kinds of other assets. So I think the vision is something like an interoperable network of these organizations that are you know, they don't all look the same. And in some ways there is a dynamic of a marketplace of governance, right? If you see this as the default, you're gonna see people move and vote kind of with their feet between organizations that do and don't have a more clearly defined purpose, organizations that do and don't actually live up to that purpose, organizations that, organizations that do and don't like share benefit in a way that is sensible and, and makes sense. So I think that to the degree that we can create enough examples and options of these that they can become, you know, real meaningful forces in people's lives, be it through real estate, through business, through through these other assets. I think we're going to, what I would hope to see is, you know, we see more demand for it. Say, hey, why isn't everything run like this? Why is it the case that, you know, a developer can come in and make affordable housing that, you know, goes away in 10 years and, you know, they make a huge sum off of the government? Shouldn't the government be spending that money on, perpetual affordable housing or one of these other models? These are going to be the questions that I think as we see more examples, we're going to be forced to ask ourselves. And I think the vision is going to emerge from the people who really take it on themselves to lead and develop these projects. And, you know, there's a lot of folks out there leading this. I I would think of like, you know, Adriana and the Kensington Corridor Trust Team. Think of trust neighborhoods. I think of obviously all the folks that we've worked with in the corporate space. And I think that yeah, this is just the the beginning.
1: <laughs> Beautiful, Derek. And so the if the golden rule that the kind of spin on the golden rule that <laughs> the people with the gold makes the rules, you know, which if we think of how could power and wealth be redistributed, right? Anon girardaris and Gerardardis and so many other people have pointed out that in a winner takes all world, we can't count on philanthropy and the charitable nature of ultra high net worth individuals to actually effectuate any real redistribution. And we're many of us are really skeptical of the state with the regulatory apparatus, which has been captured by you know corporate interests, you know, both at different scales—the state, nation-state, globally—and so there's the mechanism of redistribution could be effectuated through this network of organizations that are all voluntarily binding their purpose through ways that are actually governed by the people. So shared power and shared wealth. So true kind of cornerstones of an economy that could theoretically work for the benefit of all life, where organizations are actually making the decisions that actually, we, we want them, everybody, many people that we talk to, most people we talk to want them to make, but they actually don't at the behest of, of capital. And so yeah, I think it's a it's a beautiful vision. And I I'm definitely part of this journey with you. We at Lyft are for sure. So let's talk about capital though for a moment, maybe how it connects to the work of common trust, because somebody listening to this might be like, okay, this is cool, this is good ideas, but like for anything that needs resources to innovate, to develop, to reach a critical mass of being able to provide goods and services for the community, there's some resources or capital resources that they are going to need. How is capital going to respond to these structures when you're just saying, hey, capital, you're not going to get what you've been used to necessarily or something like that. I'm totally maybe characterizing it. But what do you want to say about capital?
0: Yeah. I mean, capital is obviously the big question. And I think that maybe the first thing I would say is that I think it's really important to engage with capital (laughs) as an abstraction, but to engage with wealth holders and capital, people who are responsible for capital deployment and people who are responsible for stewarding assets to engage with like both earnestness and also discernment. Like I think that because the legal system is designed in the way that it is, there are just certain boundaries that, you know, are sort of like they're only able to be crossed as we cross different thresholds in terms of examples, in terms of case law, in terms of the things that other people are doing. So I think that a mistake or an approach that I think is not likely to lead us towards scale and this vision of, you know, the highly integrated network shared economy of, you know, co-governed assets and communities. I think the approach that is not going to lead us there is to demonize capital and turn it into a universal enemy because that has not been my experience in working with a lot of organizations and i think there are many ways to organize capital that can actually really align with these types of structures and purposes you know non-extractive ways that actually set people up for success and depending on the organization that actually give investors a reasonable fair return and in some cases a great return i think that what i would advocate for in general when Thinking through the capital problem is really about like thinking about context and just realizing how important context is to the type of capital, the approach, all these other things. That's a pretty like high level answer to start off with. But you know, at purpose-us.com, you can check out our fellowship that we just finished, which is, you know, we worked with 11 groups building new capital vehicles that specifically align with this vision for an integrated shared ownership economy. And that, that is like, in some ways, the report is going to come out, hopefully, you know, in the middle of October or something like that, detailing everything we did there. But that fellowship was our way of kind of trying to attempt to answer this question, right? Is like, if the capital upstream of all of these projects is just fundamentally not able to align Well, then we need to build these strategic intermediaries, right? Rather than say all funds are bad, all capital is bad, we say, okay, well, we need to go through a transitionary phase where we have these middle layer funds, these folks who can aggregate capital and output a return that connects to, you know, a different has like an API or a linkage that integrates with different types of institutions, be it impact investors, foundations, pension funds, individual investors, high net worth folks. And so we built, we helped, you know, these folks build these capital vehicles that all have an explicit shared ownership thesis. 100% of them are working on projects that connect to increasing, improving the livelihoods and economic outcomes for marginalized communities. And the idea behind each one is very different and looks very different and has a very different approach. You know, some of them are like all about wealth building, it's like cool. We just want to increase economic agency for the individual, and we're going to use shared ownership as a way to to do that. Some of them are more about power building, and the overlap of wealth building and power building. Actually, we want to build a civic institution in this area that has been historically divested, and so that fellowship was is one attempt of ours to kind of both like support the space because there's a lot of people trying to do hard things, and two, like actually articulate, put a little bit more meat on the bones of this vision for like what do these new types of institutions really look like. So definitely recommend people check that out, Purpose Futures Fellowship in 2022 or 21-22. And Purpose itself, We, you know, it's been kind of a laboratory. We've been doing lots of different experiments. We've been working with lots of folks. We've been helping them set up structures. And we've been learning along the way from communities and from investors and from the business owners that we work with. And along the way, one of the things that we realized was we had built this kind of uh, growing consulting practice around helping business owners, you know, the sort of silver tsunami, baby boomer business owners exit in a way that aligns with their values into these trust models using employee ownership, community ownership, and, you know, expert stewardship as like this set of hybrid models all around the purpose trust as an exit vehicle. So... Last year, the end of last year, we spun that part of the organization. It was kind of growing and becoming more and more of what we did. So we spun that part of the organization out and merged with another group called Common Trust. And so now we're working on building both a sort of legal automation as well as financing platform to allow the three and five small businesses that are going to seek a sale in the next decade to find an alternative exit pathway. And you know, the quick sort of stats on that, because I think they're relevant, are, you know, we're looking at like 51% of US GDP of the ownership of those companies is going to transition hands in the next 10 years. So in my mind, this is a sort of if the default system absorbs those entities, or they just go out of business, which is actually the case for about 96% of them, there will be no buyer, because they're not fit for a private equity exit. You know, this is a sort of Potentially civilization ending level of inequality. Like, if we think the level of inequality we have now is extreme, like, we're actually, we haven't necessarily even hit the inflection curve of that inequality. So with common trust, the mission is really to build a scalable way to reabsorb those assets into the economy. And in so doing, actually bring them into this new economy with employees and communities in the driver's seat and passenger seat and and sitting alongside. So, that's really specifically focused on business owners and helping them find these alternative exits.
1: So, common trust, true tsunami that has vast implications on the opportunity for real wealth and power distribution or perpetuated wealth and power concentration which is hard to imagine with the chasms that there are now in the gross inequities in society as they are. So thank you, Common Trust. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, do check out the fellowship. And the food, when I think about the fellowship, I do think we're in early days because we need to build out the capacity of those funds. But there's so many interesting consequences that intersect with a climate uncertain future and our notions of return And what I've seen in some of these finance structures that you've been developing, there are returns, there's some kind of return to capital, but it's structured in such a way that I think matches much better with what, you know, for example, we discovered at Project Drawdown in terms of what types of, there are savings to be had if we invest in certain things to address, for example, a lot of the environmental stuff, the climate and so there are returns that would be generated because we we just do things very, we do things stupid right now. You know, so many of the ways in which we provision for human needs are wasteful. And so we actually can save things if we invest in diversified renewables and uh, some of the other things that we need to do, nature-based solutions and, you know, the food system, et cetera. So many things that we need to do. And so there are returns to be had, but they're slow. They're pay- more patient than the mandates of capital today. And they might not be as outsized as the mandates of capital today. So building the capacity of that financial infrastructure to like right size returns over the right period of time is something that's so important. So thank you for the fellowship work that you did with Purpose as well.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you to the fellows who were doing the hard work.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, we've covered some ground here with purpose and, and common trust and the work that you're doing and some hints at some of the implications, the potential in terms of what uh, a vision could be if this does become, you know, normal for the economy. What have I not asked? What's something else? That, is there anything else that you want to say at this juncture, Derek, about what's evolving, what's you know, grabbing your interest and attention along any of these themes?
0: It's a great question. I think that maybe the question that is on my mind is something like, you know, if this is also flexible and creative and open-ended and it's so context dependent and stuff like, you know, how in the world are we ever gonna get to scale? Are we gonna get to really like, you know, scale not for the sake of itself, you know, but scale for the sake of like serving the people that actually need these new systems to be in place in order to, you know, live a happy, healthy life. And you know, I think that's a that's a hard question. And my best bet on the answer is something like we need a combination of approaches that doesn't necessarily look like the conventional approaches to building a sector. You know, to the degree that you can call shared ownership a sector, what I see is a lot of funds getting started, which is great. You know, we obviously support funds getting started. A lot of narrative work, a lot of work on early stage companies, but relatively little of the legal infrastructure building of the supportive networks being built of the, you know, just like really basic collaborative infrastructure that, that this, this whole sector needs a different type of financial and legal infrastructure than the dominant sector, right? Because we're saying, actually, we, we reject the centralized notion of the single balance sheet and the central owner. And instead, we're going to create this network of owners and participate as participatory networks in various formats, be it employee ownership or community ownership or, or whatever. And those systems need fundamentally different infrastructure to live on. So, you know, if you've ever tried to get a loan for a house with a group of six friends, you're immediately going to run into the fact that the bank, very few banks are interested in recognizing the, you know, the reality or potential reality of shared risk as actually reducing risk. So, you know, as soon as you click on any one question in the space, it zooms way into the deepest level of infrastructure. And I think that I trace this a little bit to so much of the space being philanthropically funded, frankly, because I think that there's like a, it's really unsexy to build infrastructure. So it's really hard. It's hard to raise philanthropic funding to be like, oh, we're going to build a you know, protocol for allowing low-income folks to access liquidity on their like community ownership portfolio. And it's like, okay, that was a lot of big words. And ultimately what it means is like, how can a person invest in a building that they live in while also being low-income, such that they don't even have that much money to save They can't lock their money up. Okay, that's a human problem that is not being solved by the current financial infrastructure and that if we hope to get any scale, you know, those human problems are going to need to be kind of like, they need to be like technically and culturally solved. And so I see a lot of people working on the kind of oh, we're going to raise a fund and we're going to, you know, deploy a hundred million dollars and it's going to, you know, a thousand workers. And that's great. That's really important. But, you know, the scale of the problem is we need about a thousand of those or 10,000 of those, and all of them are going to run into the same core functional issues with the legal and financial system. So anybody interested in doing that work, I think, I guess this is just a note of encouragement because that's, I think, what is going to cause stalls along the way.
1: And, you know, thinking about that earlier, I gave it just a very cursory critique of the corporate capture of the state, but, you know, a functional democracy, you know, reweaving the role of the state, the state helped create through the legal system, and so forth, helped create the barriers that we're trying to cut across, theoretically, we could leverage the power structures of the state under like, a, some kind of true democratic participatory involvement to help accelerate the creation of this emergent infrastructure that's necessary so it's a, a broad collaboration. And so anybody listening, if you're inspired by what Derek's working on, you want to support some way, jump in. There's tremendous number of existing and emergent opportunities. And then for anybody, even if you're like, oh, that's not my personal passion, we're going to need to organize and develop some level of literacy in all of this as society to help effectuate that transition through organizing and our collective voice. Derek, this has been a total pleasure. There's so many things that we didn't talk about, not necessarily about the work you're doing today, but that we can go in so many different directions, more case stories and so forth. We can have that conversation another time. But I want to honor your time today and just extend my gratitude for this conversation, for your work. And yeah, just saying something about that. It's not sexy work. It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, reading through, you know, multi-hundred page legal documents, where that's not and maybe you know maybe not being compensated for it you know i know what that's like in the middle of the night and it's actually really hard it's it's hard to do some of the unsexy infrastructure work so i'm just really deeply grateful for you putting your intelligence and your attention on these big problems and huge opportunities to create more benefit for life so thank you thank
0: you yeah it's been a pleasure
1: all right well with that maybe we'll wrap this one up and i look forward to next time we get to chat
0: Next economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomycom slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify,
1: Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.